welcome to the second Helix Global Panorama from Helix International with me, Philip Geddes. It's my great pleasure to host the second of these monthly podcasts, where one of the Helix Medical Security and Crisis Risk Team is joined by an external specialist to talk about key current affairs and industry topics and to try and make sense of what they mean for business organizations. For this podcast, we'll be exploring the complex but fascinating topic of the relationship between Iran and Iraq. Iran has sought to advance its foreign policy interests in Iraq for decades using diplomacy, economic power, and its sway over several Iraqi militias. However, over recent years, Iran has suffered several setbacks in projecting its influence. From the 2020 assassination of Iran's top general Qasem Soleimani to emerging rivalries with other regional powers keen to safeguard their own interests in Iraq. Today, I'm happy to be joined by two guests who will guide us through the threats and opportunities facing Iranian influence in Iraq in 2022 and look at what this means for organizations operating in Iraq. So let me start by introducing my guests. From the Helix side, I'm joined by senior Middle East and Africa analyst, Jacob Lees Weiss. And joining Jacob, it's our great pleasure to have New York-based author and scholar, Arash Azizi. Arash is one of the most prominent experts on contemporary Iran. His work is regularly featured in high-profile outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, the BBC, Guardian, Al Jazeera, Iran Wire, and Al Monitor. He is the author of the book, The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the US and Iran's Global Ambitions, a work that manages that rare achievement of balancing access to the subject with detailed research and insight. We're gonna begin by taking stock of Iran's clout in Iraq two years after the US-ordered assassination of Soleimani, discussing the successes and failures of his replacement, Esmail Khani. We'll then look at Iran's goals since the US force withdrawal from Iraq and potential strategies for Iranian-backed militias since the 2021 elections. And we'll finish with a discussion on Iran's emerging rivalry with Turkey in Iraq. So, uh, gentlemen, to both of you, very warm welcome. Um, Arash, thanks so much for joining us today. Please, just thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. A, a very good place to start might be in examining uh, Iran's approach to Iraq and the 2020 assassination of Hassan Soleimani. I mean, just to remind listeners, uh, Soleimani was commander of the section of the Republican Guard in charge of foreign subversion and clandestine military actions and was widely regarded as the key right-hand man of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. He played a key role in defending the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad and was described by a CIA agent as the single most powerful operative in the Middle East today. He was assassinated by a drone on the orders of President Trump on the 3rd of January 2020. Um, Arash, perhaps you could give us a general overview of the importance of Soleimani in implementing Iranian foreign policy goals in Iraq before, 19, before 2020. Soleimani was very important. Um, he was in charge of all the foreign operations of the IRGC, this militia that uh, 
that effectively controls Iran today, or it's it's one of, it's controls most of Iran. Let's say it's the most powerful actor in Iran, um, and he really was the second most powerful man in Iran in many ways after after Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader. Um, you know what made Soleimani special was that he was really able to command tens of thousands of peoples, non-Iranians mostly, um, and move them between the battlefields in in Iraq, in Lebanon, in in Syria, um, uh, in in Gaza. Um, and other places, and was able to sort of weave them into a um, into a network. So he was a, he was a very incredibly powerful and 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 influential man, and and very sort of able and talented uh, in doing this. Uh, you know, and his replacement shows that it's really not not easy to be to be Soleimani. But so he was uh, highly successful at the job. Uh, he's been replaced now uh, by Esmail Khani as his replacement. And how's Khani differ, if at all, from, from Soleimani's approach to Iraq? There's a couple of things I'd say. Uh, number one, on a personal level, it's very clear that no one could really be Soleimani. Really, he was. And the, and the point was that, you know, he had this charisma. He had this, uh, you know, ability to connect and contacts that he had built throughout the years. Khani has a couple of things going against him. Number one, he does not have the charisma. He does not have the personal connections with leaders in Lebanon and Iraq. Um, and he doesn't even speak Arabic very well. Um, Arabic is a very difficult language for most Iranians to learn, as myself and others who've tried can, uh, you know, can attest. Um, and he, you know, he doesn't have a good command of Arabic. Um, he hasn't been able to feel that. But I, I have to say, it's not just that. Um, what is also important is that there is a very strong movement in Iraq and Lebanon against um, the Iranian attempt to dominate these countries. Um, and that movement you know, has, has had some successes. Um, and it, this was already happening even before the movement really started in 2019 um, when Soleimani was alive. And uh, you know, God knows if, if he was alive, how things would have been different. But uh, certainly it's not just about him not being there, but it's, it's about these movements and these really people in this country is being fed up by being uh, dominated by Iran. Uh, so in other words, his predecessor's success has created problems for him. Uh, exactly. Yes. The prince's success created a problem for him. Um, but as I said, um, the success itself was, Soleimani's success itself was very fragile in many ways. Because, I mean, and we can sort of talk about this, but, um, you know, the, the reality is there were a lot of people in the Shia communities, right, uh, who are, who, this Shia is one uh, sect in Islam, is one section of Islam that is a dominant religion in Iran. And a Sort of a slight majority of religion in Iraq um, and and also a major religion in in Lebanon. Um, the Shia communities in both these countries who are supposed to be sort of traditionally uh, in line with the Iranian government um, are not anymore. Um, they are fed up because they're being dominated by a foreign country because there's a there's a lot of corruption in the sectarian system in both of these countries. So there was already. A, in fact, there were street movements in 2019 in both Lebanon and Iraq. And you know, as you noted yourself. Um, in the elections in October in Iraq, um, we saw a massive defeat for all these uh, sort of forces supported by the Iranian government. Um, and, and Lebanon has elections this year, where it's very likely that we, or you know, it's possible at least, um, that we'll see a similar defeat. And uh, so the challenges, you know, the challenges are there, but Iran basically lost its most powerful figure and right at the time when it was facing all these challenges. So that's how it's been sort of severely weakened in this in these two countries. Um, Jacob, can I bring you in now and say, do you think that uh, Soleimani's replacement has led to a more 
stable security environment for business in Iraq? Well, in short, no. I mean, there's been a clear lack of control of the militias by Qa'ani. And as Arash pointed out, some of this is due to pers- you know, a lack of personality traits, not being able to speak Arabic, a lack of charisma, but also uh, due to external factors. Um, and this lack of control has led to a much more chaotic environment in Iraq. Yes, militia escalation was always going to be inevitable following Soleimani's assassination. But the past two years of regular attacks on U.S. diplomatic and military assets, I think, point towards much more a an unwanted and undesired lack of control by Iran than not. I mean, there were clearly points when Iran wanted de-escalation, um, but the militia disobeyed, for example, towards the back end of Trump's presidency at the end of 2020, and towards the end of last year when Iran ordered uh, its Iranian-backed militias to accept the results of the 2021 elections, but they declined. And for business in particular, what's worrying is that okay, these militia attacks are targeted at U.S. diplomatic and military assets, but these assets are embedded in areas of prime interest. So the risk of collateral damage is there, which is also compounded further by the the somewhat unsophisticated nature of some of these attacks. Uh, Take, for example, the the regular Katyusha rocket attacks targeting uh, international airports. Uh, You basically have Katyusha rockets um, put inside, cut off pieces of boiler pipe, put on, you know, mounted on the back of a of a of a truck somewhere, but uh, you know, a timer attached and then abandoned. So yeah, uh, maybe you take for an example, Erbil uh, International Airport, February 2021, 14 rockets are fired at a U.S. military base attached to the civilian airport. They missed their mark and hit civilian airports instead. Again, last month, Baghdad International Airport was attacked. Six rockets are fired. They missed their mark, two of which hit civilian aircraft, a third hits a runway, thankfully, uh, both in uninha- you know, unused at the time. But following on from this, you have uh, significant operational disruption. You have Kuwaiti Airlines suspending flights for an initial period of a week. So it's not just loss of life, but also uh, significant operational disruption. So in other words, you're, what you're saying is that the even with the withdrawal of the Americans, um, there hasn't really been a reduction in militant activity. And so does this, if anything, it's more random, which is really rather more dangerous for business than anything else, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, towards some points towards 2021, you've seen uh, a trend towards the use of more advanced drone technology. But the problem is when we're talking about this topic is just that there's just a myriad of militias using different techniques and different amounts of sophistication. Um, So it's a really complex issue to address. Um, But certainly I don't see Iraq becoming more safe. I mean, we're talking now February 2022. It's been a month since the US withdrawal. Um, And yes, there are other factors that do, you know, take place. You have the second year anniversary of Soleimani's assassination in January, ongoing political tensions regarding government formation. Um, But I think the major reason is that the militias just did not get their propaganda victory that they thought they might have got. After two years of sustained operations targeting the US, they never got to see their Kabul moment. They never got to see US troops uh, departing on a plane into the sunset forever. Uh, Arash, can I put this same same point to you in a slight, perhaps a slightly different angle? It, it, it then leaves the Iranian-backed militias thinking, what do we have a go at next? Why do we use our power next? But, but they are, of course, somewhat entrenched in the Iraqi army and in, in Iraq's armed forces, aren't they? Um, they certainly are. Um, 
And, you know, the, the as Jacob rightly pointed out, the discordant scene of the Iraqi Shia militias is key here. Unlike some other countries, Iran was never really able to put all these groups, um, you know, as part of the same, um, as part of the same, uh, you know, group or same umbrella group. There, there are many different groups. Um, and on his trip a couple of months ago to Iraq was aimed at, then it seemed to be, I mean, it's always, we don't know actually what happens in these meetings. Like there's always like two sources who speak to Reuters or, uh, you know, it's never really clear. Um, but it seems to be trying to calm them down a little bit. Um, although I can't imagine that all of the actions that they have have been without the consent from Tehran. I should say that actually in the last months of Trump presidency, it did seem that they did obey Iran in, in a certain way because we did have you know much less action than otherwise. Um, anyways, but so, I mean, it's, it's clear that Iraq is, is not as stable or safe by any sort of definition. Um, but I think if, and, you know, business usually, I think, um, has a sometimes a short term view naturally, like Iraq is not, you know, where you would like to um, invest in, um, uh, you know, for, for short term gain. But um, if, if we look at some more long term trends, there might be more reasons to be hopeful. Um, the fact that there is seems to be a growing coalition in the country that wants a stable Iraq, um, that wants to disarm the militias or put them under order, and that and that wants the Iraq to not be a battleground between um, U.S. and Iran. Now, what happens in the next few years, you know, will, will determine things. Um, and uh, but they, but this coalition, um, let's call it a coalition for Iraqi sovereignty, um, does exist in Iraqi politics, and I think that's a hopeful sign for the future of Iraq. But uh, it's a very rocky okay. road ahead if events, um, you know, if events are any any right. Okay, can we come back to that in just a minute or two? I'd like to take, and I don't think it's a diversion here, uh, to talk about um, Iran's relationship with the rest of the world, particularly the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the the Iran Nuclear Agreement. Um, Now, this uh, has an effect on what Iran can do in Iraq, because uh, obviously sanctions and all that affect Iran's ability to to pay for things. the U.S. sanction program, which followed um, uh, the Americans' withdrawal from the original agreement, um, has obviously had quite a, a, a considerable effect. And do you think, um, Arash, in any way that Iran's negotiating team is taking account of its ability to fund militias during the negotiations? Um, I think Iranian economy is in such dire state um, that they probably have uh, bigger priorities. Um, they, you know, they really are worried about the economic uh, health in the future. Um, now we'll see, as you know, the talks going on on, on tomorrow. They, they restart the eighth round. Um, there are some signs that you know it's quite possible that a deal can be made. Um, but but let me let me answer this question this way. I think. Um, you know, the international community is interested in revival of the Iran deal. It's primarily interested in stopping the nuclear program. And this has often been asked, and, you know, what about the militias, which, which everybody agrees are, are a problem in the region. I think the way to counter um, the Iranian, let's call them, you know, malign activities, as history called it in the region, the way to do this should go through, um, through the region, not just basically wanting to keep Iran economically crippled forever um, to, to affect its sort of abilities there is, is not very successful and not very productive in, you know, in the long run. What can be done, though, is to support forces in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in other countries, 
that uh, that are uh, you know rising up to this Iranian uh, dominance and and this militia activities. Um, I think that's a much more um, you know if if the deal is made, this this worry would rightly be made that really Iran you know increases funding to Hezbollah to Iraqi Shia groups to to other groups. Um, but I think the way to do that is to um, is goes through the politics of of these countries, uh, not uh, keeping Iran economically crippled with the hope that it would have you know less financial generosity for its militias. But but there is the issue, isn't there, that um, Iran's negotiating position is a pretty pretty much of an impossible one, which is to say we want an immediate end to sanctions before we consider any changes in, in, in policy on nuclear matters. I mean, that seems to me to make almost any agreement impossible. One should also note that the, uh, the Iranian delegation is still refusing to meet face to face with the US delegation, which can't, uh, whichever way you look at it, help negotiations. Look, I mean, I've been covering these negotiations for 19 years as <laughs> they've been going on. And, uh, you know, they uh, almost my entire adult life, really. Uh, it's like a never-ending story. And, um, you know, there's always a lot of loud words that they, you know, that the Iranians say. Um, but what they agree to in practice is quite different. Um, so, yes, naturally, a lot of positions that the Iranians speak of, it's, it's very clear that they're, they're never going to pass, right? Um, <clears throat> but I think, the, I think the current administration is very, you know, aware of, of that, that the economic um, troubles are too much, um, and that they might—they also understand that they have a party in the White House now that wants the deal, which might not be the case later. So, look, I'm not sure, of course, but I think it is possible that they'll accept. Now, they'll find a face. What well, if there's one thing that they're a master at? It's finding a face-saving way of taking. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's a loss, they'll, they'll dress it up as a victory. They—they they can do that with just about anything. So. Um, you know that, that if if they really want to, if Khamenei wants to, and and if the leadership wants to, um, they'll be able to they'll be able to do it. And I think there there is a good chance that that they'll do this. Uh, Jacob, let me come back to you now. So uh, let's suppose that the the U.S. Uh, really does stick with the talks, uh, and which is not entirely clear at this moment. And let's just suppose that the Iranians do become a little bit easier to to, to negotiate with, and that there is some sort of a deal as uh, um, as I suggested, which is then pulled together and made to look like a, a, a great and glorious success. Is that going to negatively or positively affect the security environment in Iraq? Um, following on from any potential deal, and of course it depends on the details here, um, I don't see any immediate f- effect on the Iraqi security environment. I guess the crux of it is this, and maybe this is an oversimplification of how U.S. sanctions interact with the Iranian economy, but I guess the bottom line is the more sanctions the U.S. lifts, the greater the economic recovery of Iran will be, and therefore the more support Iran will be able to give to its militias in Iraq. Um, Yes, Iran might not get a nuclear weapon, okay, but the leverage and influence that uh, the militias in Iraq can get Iraq, Iran should not be underestimated. What I would be worried about for Iraq, and we've already seen signs of this to an extent, uh, earlier, I believe, we've seen claims of um, an Iranian-backed militia firing drones towards the UAE. So if militias in Iraq have their capabilities grow to the extent that they can seriously target the UAE and Saudi Arabia, just as the Houthis in Yemen target the UAE and Saudi Arabia from the south, then this could bring Iraq into a dangerous regional conflict that it has no place being in. You, you, what you're suggesting there is that effectively the militias might actually 
widen the scope of the war well, this by is, bringing, you know, in, bringing in new powers who at the moment are not involved militarily. Yeah, I mean, this would be for deterrence and a way of pressuring the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, and it is a dangerous game to play because if you if you are Saudi Arabia and you are UAE, you are not going to want to see Iran open up a second front to the north to complement the Houthis in the south, um, which, as I said, would be dangerous for Iraq. Okay, Arish, can we move on now to look to uh, back to Iraq's eternal politi- internal politics, which we were uh, you you raised most interesting points about just now. Uh, now the uh, the election results in 2021 resulted in in big losses for the Al Fatah alliance, which is basically, uh, if I put it in headline terms, Shia and pro Iranian. With the big winner being the Shiite nationalist anti Iranian Mokhtar al Sada. Now, what effect did that have on Iran? Did it did did, did it make Iran think twice? I think um, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think uh, they, they certainly they're unhappy about this, right? Um, and I think the different factions in Iran have had different takes on how to deal with this, as they always have had, right? Um, there are those who basically are, you know, think that the Iranian support for the militias in Iraq is dangerous, and in the long term, Iran should not do this um, and should try to increase the influence of the uh, pro-Iranian forces in the Iraqi government, but then go through the Iraqi government, right? Not not support the militias in anything that they do. Um, but so they, 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 the short version of it is that I think they were very unhappy at first, but they did try to calm the militias down um, so that they wouldn't do crazy things like trying to assassinate Prime Minister uh, Mustafa Kazemi, which at some point they did. Some of them clearly did. Um, and... Um, but I think they, Iran has kept, um, you know, Iran has kept its militias at sort of a brink to, to play some sort of a brinksmanship game um, with the Americans and try to win concessions there. Um, but the emerging coalition around Sadr with the Kurdish Democratic Party, um, with a very stable Sunni coalition, which we are now seeing in Iraq, perhaps for the first time in many years, really, we have seen confidence of the of the uh, Sunni coalition that is really rising in ways that we haven't seen since 2003 and the fall of Saddam. Um, this is the emerging reality that Iranians uh, have to uh, find a way to deal with. And, um, you know, uh, today it, it's, it's not going all the smooth for Sadr and his allies. Today, for example, we saw the, the session of the Iraqi parliament that was supposed to pick the president was basically canceled because Sadr and Iranians and everybody else basically boycotted it because uh, you know they couldn't agree on um, on on the presidential vote. Um, so it's not all a smooth sailing for Sadr. But if if he's able to form a government that excludes Iranians uh, for the first time since 2003, pro-Iran parties basically would have no place in the government. This would be a major loss for Iran, and then they'd have to calculate. And they, I'll, I'll just say this: they'll basically have a choice. Do they want to go for the coup version, right? Do they want their militias to try to overthrow this government, make it sort of uh, you know, do this, um, or will they try to just bide their time and try to have influence in other ways? I think, and I hope that they'll go for the latter, because if they want to go for the former, of course, it would really increase the chances of conflict in the region and it won't be in favor of anybody. Well, that you very neatly brought us on to our last uh, subject of discussion today. Um, uh, Arash, uh, Iran has had a long tradition of interfering in its neighbors' affairs. It's been heavily involved in Syria, as we've discussed. Uh, It's also played a big role in the disruption of the the state of the Lebanon, fighting in the Yemen. And then finally, there's there's, there's Iran's ambition to be seen leading the battle against Israel for the the Muslim world. Now, 
for most people, that would look like enough enemies to be going along with. But it looks as if Iran is about to add Turkey to its list of foes. Uh, you wrote a very interesting article in early 21 about Turkey's goals in northern Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan. So what is Turkey trying to achieve vis-a-vis Iran? And how will that influence events in, in, in Iraq and, uh, and Iraq? Um, so Iran and Turkey, despite all the major changes, revolutions and coups between them in the last few decades, have never really gone on, you know, they've never really fought, right? They've understood that as neighbors, they have too much to lose, right? There's great economic, uh, the, the economic ties between Iran and Turkey have never really been, you know, they have, have, you know, they're not comparable with, let's say, Iran and Saudi Arabia or UAE, which, which the economic ties have been much less. But Iran and Turkey are robust are in, in many different fields. So they've never really gone head to head. Um, and in Iraq as well, they'll remain more rivals, uh, let's say, as, as serious enemies, right? So they'll, you know, in various places um, in Iraq, they, you know, they come against each other. For example, in, this, in the Sinjar part, um, the Yazidi majority part in northern Iraq, you know, well known, but this is the area in which ISIS, of course, committed the genocide um, uh, of, of the Yazidi people and, uh, uh, you know, took Yazidi women as, as sexual slaves, a very well-documented crime against humanity. In this area, there's very complex politics because basically the Yazidi, the Yazidi militias there are linked to both Iran and the Shia militias in Baghdad, right, in Iraq, um, and to PKK, which is um, the, of course, the armed Kurdish militia in Turkey, uh, which has its allies across the Kurdish world in Syria and in Iraq. So Iran and Turkey there are faced off against each other in this way because PKK, of course, is Turkey's enemy number one, um, and Iran is collaborating with these Yazidi militias that are that are you know allied to it and to PKK. So that's one area um, where they don't see eye to eye. But it, it will it, remain. Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, but I mean the the fact that PKK is is the dirtiest word you can utter really in Turkey, and if. Iran would seem to be backing that. Uh, looking at how Turkey has behaved recently on other matters of relationships with its neighbours, it's, it's likely to take a fairly hardline view on anyone who is encouraging the PKK, isn't it? Definitely, but Iran would never back PKK fully, right? They've always had, you know, this is the story of Kurdish relations in our regions. It's sort of a sad story, but it's a reality. Different Kurdish forces will ha- will flirt and have relations with different co- governments in the region right the, the the Kurdish Democratic Party now which is the leading party in Iraqi Kurdistan base has close relations with Turkey as you know and they are the other the two main Iraqi Kurdish parties have often worked with Baghdad and Tehran you know against each other um, so it's this complex web of Middle Eastern and Kurdish politics but Iran would never sort of fully back PKK because it's not a suit because it doesn't want to uh, ruin its relation should be Turkey further, it sort of has no gain there. And of course, Iran has a massive Kurdish population itself. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't want to do anything there that would encourage more separatist tendency in the Iranian Kurdistan there. So there's this careful game. If you look at the longer duration over like decades, they've always been careful not to inflame things mm-hmm. too much. Um, but I would say one thing, um, you know, more generally to our discussion, to put all this together. Um, the reality is, of course, I speak here as an Iranian, you know, I love my country very much. Um, but the fact remains that really, if you want to be a fair analyst of this region, the fact is the Iranian regime um, is 
invested itself in instability, in instability, right? It has invested itself in creating disruptions in in all these other countries, and it really is the prime factor there. You know, it's the only country that has a irrational line against Israel. Like that, this is the only country that backs basically destruction of Israel. It would fund militias against Israel uh, at any price, and it's the only country that doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, interested really in more stable relations across the board, which is, you know, the other leaders in the country, it's not like they're necessarily better people or more committed to human rights or anything, but they seem to be, you know, they have more interest often in the stability of this country. So it is really a question that the Iranian regime, this revolutionary regime with its history, um, with its particular ideological goals, they, they, you would not see proper stability in this region. You would not see a path forward in this region without this regime abandoning um, you know, abandoning this goals. And the question is, how can that happen? Um, you know, and that is really the prime major question in the region. If we, if we, if we come out, you know, if we look at a more broad picture, I think that is really the key a million dollar question of how that's whether through a fundamental change in Iran and the Islamic Republic, which I think is possible, and I hope for one day, or short of that, with a fundamental strategic reconsideration that you know, Islamic Republic basically stops doing um, these regional acts. And uh, of course, in throughout history, many, many in the Islamic Republic have advocated for just that, for Iran to be a more normal country, basically, as opposed to one that backs all these militias. Um, but they've, you know, they've all lost in the political game in Iran. And uh, after Khamenei dies, which is probably not very far off in future, we might see this strategic consideration that will really change the region for the better. Uh, would, you, would you share that assessment, Jacob? Uh, do you think it's a likelihood? But Iran might change its spots much. Uh, I think it, it it's it would take something drastic domestically for that to happen. Yes, Iran does invest in stability abroad, but it has so much success in doing so. Um, I just no. I I think you'd have to see what the the successor to Khamenei would be like, what um, options and and routes he would take, but. Um, um, at this point, I think it, I think it's unlikely. While I have you there, Jacob, uh, how do you uh, the, 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 the the picture that Irish was punching of uh, of um, Iraqi Kurdistan stability? It was one that was where it was potentially pretty rocky, but it's always been seen as a, a friend of the West, as it were, and has been quite happy to. Seek support and get uh, and gain good relationships with many countries in the West. Who said, "Oh well, why can't more people be like Kurdistan, as it were?" I mean, is that um, a, a reasonable way of thinking? Do you think? Um, yeah, it does have this image of being an oasis of stability, um, which perhaps is justifiable to an extent in Erbil and Suleimania, but within rural areas of the KRG, Iraqi Kurdistan, you still have PKK militants, other Kurdish militant groups near the border with Iran. You still have Islamic State uh, cells throughout rural areas, tensions with the Iraqi federal government over Kirkuk, Iran, Iranian-backed militia infiltration. So there's, there's just a lot going on. And then there is widespread corruption um, at the very highest levels, so uh, I'm not sure how deserving of uh, its image it really is. Uh, let me come back to a final final question. All the ambitions that Iran has had overseas, which we've been talking about, have come, uh, and you were referring to it earlier on, Arish, at a huge cost to the people of Iran. 
Uh, we've seen sanctions, uh, followed, of course, by economic dislocation, uh, to say nothing of a, a very poor response to the pandemic, uh, which has, uh, has, has seen it, looked at times as if it was going to lay Iran low. These have left the Iranian economy looking pretty weak. And that's even at a time of good oil prices, when countries like uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia have been exploiting good oil prices. I mean, it does raise the question of how much longer the Iranian population will put up the cost of what many see as aggressive and, div and divisive foreign adventures. Uh, how long do you think the patience of the Iranian people will, will last before it breaks in some form? And if so, how is it going to break? Um, yes, unfortunately, political change and bringing down of dictatorships um, is, is you know, easier said than done. Now, the patience of Iranian people have uh, boiled over a few times over. In fact, it's kind of amazing if you look at how many mass movements Iran has had and how many hundreds of people have been killed, executed, how many tens of thousands are in jail. You know, if you want to follow um, human rights situation in Iran, it's almost impossible now just because to just count the number of prisoners. Um, and of course, in 2009, you had a mass movement. In the last four years, you had two mass movements all over the country in which people did come out and they did come out against the regime. Unfortunately, lack of a political alternative and a political leadership that could uh, lead to a successful overthrow of the government meant that you know, they, were, they were unsuccessful. Um, but I think the basic reality here is um, that many Iranians, including myself, felt like their country has effectively been taken hostage by a group of men who, um, you know, a group of usually very old men who, um, who not only don't have the best interests of the country at mind, um, who are ready to give it up, who are ready to see it destroyed um, just so that they can keep power for themselves and their friends. And uh, this is not sustainable. Uh, now, the push from below has happened many times, as I said. Um, but the, the reality is that there will also be pushes from the top because, frankly, even if you're a part of the Iranian establishment, at some point, uh, you know, many have said before, uh, you know, many have come to conclude. There are many people who were born and bred in the Iranian revolution, right? They've supported it. But after a while, I found out, you know, you know, why would they support this? Because it, it doesn't even reach its own purported goals. It's not like Iran today is a more Islamic society. It's not like it's a more spiritual society. And it's not like it's a more, you know, it's not a successful uh, society by, by any means, by, by any measure, by, by no one's measure. You can, you know, can someone look at it and say, oh, it's doing great. So that, that's why I think the death of Khamenei, who is the last one holding the system together, can be important. Now, I don't think Khamenei will die and immediately there will be a revolution, but he is in his, you know, almost mid eighties and he's not a very healthy man. Um, and the next stage will be, will be interesting. Um, but all I can say is that Iranians who not just want the ones who want democracy, because democracy, you know, is, is one issue. And, you know, it's not like we have many flourishing democracies in the Middle East, um, but those who love their country and who want to see it to basically turn into a more normal country. In fact, this term, normal life, normal country is a slogan used by Iranians. They just want a more normal life. They want a government that, that, you know, might be a little corrupt, might be undemocratic, but at least its primary goal is to, um, you know, is to run the country, not to try to advance an anachronistic Islamist revolution in the region and to take fights with nuclear arms, states like Israel in the region, uh, in a situation where not a single Arab state wants to do that anymore. Um, so I am, you know, I'm always an optimist. Uh, so I do think, uh, uh, you know, that we will see something like that emerge um, in the future. But unfortunately, the path to getting there. 
um, is not going to be very easy um, or, or very peaceful. Right. Well, I think that brings us really to the end of our time. I mean, the, uh, I think one often underestimates how many people in this world want to live a quiet and peaceful and normal life. Uh, but there are a lot of them and they don't always get out and do things about it. Um, anyway, if I may, thank you both very much. Jacob Liesweiss and Arash Azizi. Uh, a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. This was yes, a thanks, lot of guys. fun. Thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining me. And we're most grateful to you. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Helix Global Panorama podcast series by Helix. The views expressed in this episode are those of the guests themselves and do not necessarily represent the official position of Helix. For more information on health, crisis and risk management services, be sure to visit our website at www.helix.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Thank you.